Let's talk about fires. Germany is burning masks. Something burned in Joe's kitchen that one time and daycare workers got fired for dressing up and scaring children. I'm about to name my losers of the week. It's Thursday the 13th, but every day is Friday the 13th in Brandon's America and the show starts now. So y'all, I promise you, when I sat down to select my losers of the week, I really tried to avoid Joe Biden because he's been named so many times that it's almost unfair to the rest of the world's collective losers. But then he rambled on about some nonsense on two separate occasions, and I just couldn't help myself. So here is Joe once again being a loser. Fires and a billion trillion million billion dollars. Let's play Words with Joe. I, uh, I, was, uh, I, I was doing Meet the Press and uh, lightning struck a little pond behind my house, came up through the ground into the air conditioning system, ended up generating thick black smoke, literally, literally that of those proportions. And from the basement to the third floor, the attic, everything was ruined. And the kitchen floor, we almost lost a couple firefighters, they tell me. We passed $368 billion worth of help, which, as the same bankers talk about, is going to bring a billion, a trillion, seven hundred million dollar, billion dollars off the sidelines in investment. <laughs> Y'all have heard of FDR's fireside chats. Well, our current president gives us more of what I would call the dementia diaries. And as for the billion, trillion, million, billion dollars thing, that wasn't a gaffe, folks. That was a lowball estimate of how far in debt we're going to be after Joe completes his remaining 830 days in office. I'm not really sure the point of his kitchen fire story, but I do know that in 2004, the Associated Press said it was actually a small fire contained in the kitchen that was under control in about 20 minutes. But whatever, let Joe dream, right? But it wouldn't be the first time he got his delusions confused with reality. Weird, he would talk about the horrors of a small kitchen blaze given he's turned our country into one giant dumpster fire. But speaking of fires, let's jump countries now on over to Germany, where they are set to burn 800 million unused face diapers. Turns out the masks passed their sell-by dates and about 20% of them had quality defects, like maybe they don't freaking work. Now, burning those face masks isn't a loser thing to do. Actually, quite the opposite. I applaud them and let those cloth muzzles burn, baby, burn. But the loser part of this story is similar to our buddy boy Gavin Newsom. Germany's former health minister, Jan Spahn, wasted the equivalent of $5.9 billion on those worthless ass face coverings. And turns out, just like Gabby Boy, he may have procured those lovely face diapers using personal connections. So while I'm happy those bad boys are going to burn, it's also enraging how much of the people's money global leaders wasted on them. Let us never be that stupid ever, ever again. But next up, Halloween is just a few weeks away, so to get y'all in the spirit, my last losers of the week are these four Mississippi daycare workers who were recently fired after this video went viral. What's up, everyone? It's Nick Wright, and I got something exciting to talk to you about today. Angie, your ultimate destination for getting all your jobs done well. Now, Angie isn't just your average home services marketplace. It's a game changer with over 150 million homeowners served and a network of over 200,000 skilled pros. Angie has experience and expertise to tackle any project with ease. 
Whether you're looking to spruce up your backyard or undergo a major home renovation, Angie's got your back. And their pros are locally based, often running small businesses right in your community. And here's the best part. Angie makes the process seamless. From researching and comparing pros to scheduling services at your convenience, Angie's user-friendly platform puts you in control. So why settle for anything less than perfection when it comes to your home? With Angie, you can trust every project will be completed with the utmost care and professionalism. So get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today to discover why homeowners across the nation are turning to Angie to get all their jobs done well. Turns out Little Blessings Child Care and Learning Center is a pretty traumatic place to be this time of year. But shoot, if I would have known wearing a scary mask made people behave and clean up after themselves, I would have gotten one to wear around the house to whip my soon-to-be husband into shape long, long ago. But that's a story for a different day. Anyway, look, I believe these workers did it all in good fun, and I believe they didn't intend to inflict terror, trauma, and horror on those young children. But where they really messed up here is the mask choice. If they wanted to do something truly terrifying, you know, I could have suggested some better options. Because the White House is essentially a spirit Halloween at this point, and I am still not convinced Hillary is not Michael Myers. Those are my losers of the week, but up next, the Democrats are now falling all over themselves to cover their defund the police tracks, but too bad we've got enough video evidence to create a feature film. Street Cops' Dennis Menino joins me in Nashville next. Defunding the police has to happen. We need to defund the police. Yes, I support the defund movement. Talking about um, the reduction of our NYPD budget and defunding a $6 billion NYPD budget. Not only do we need to defund, but we need to dismantle. Lawlessness in our streets, spiking crime rates, violence, murder, smashing grabs, you name it, it's happening. And yet the Democrats either turn a blind eye or somehow manage to blame it on Republicans. So you got to hand it to them. When it comes to the gaslight, they let their lies light the way. But joining me now to break it all down from a law enforcement and non-felon coddling perspective is former law enforcement officer and founder of Street Cop Training, Dennis Benino. All right, Dennis, we saw the clip. They wanted to defund, and now some of them still want to defund, but some of them are really running away from that narrative, even trying to convince us that they didn't defund their police departments. In fact, trying to tell us, no, we wanted to increase the police budget. What do you say to all that? Well, uh, clearly it has backfired and badly. And um, we're at a point now where I can't even project how you fix it, to be honest with you, because the people that you sold out the men and women in law enforcement who did this job for pennies on the dollar for a reason for a why to serve the people for next to nothing 
all they had left was their purpose and their why, and you remove that from them. So they've left and gone to other places, and namely outside of cities into suburbs where they're welcome with open arms because they're human beings, and they, uh, they need respect, and they need somebody to have their back. Oftentimes I hear, well, now we're refunding the departments. We, we acknowledge it was a bad idea to defund, to reallocate funds and mess with our budgets. We get it, but don't worry. Now we're refunding them. And I say the exact same thing that you just said. It's, yeah, it's one thing to fund them, but you can give officers a million dollars. It doesn't make the job any easier when you undermine them at every turn. And I think that's the biggest thing right now with law enforcement officers, besides just the demonization, the demoralization, because that exists from the media, but it's also being undermined. It's one thing where people just hate you. I think we can all at some point, it's like, oh, they hate us, they hate me, they hate you, whatever. At least I can do my job. But officers on the street now are not really able to do their job because of all this cockamamie bail reform, letting felons out of prison, wanting to clear the prisons. Is there a solution to that from a law enforcement perspective? Well, there's a few things we gotta look at. The first one is, we're always going to need cops. So there has to be a solution. So there has to be hope. And actually, the answer to this whole thing was, if you actually wanted better cops, was to fund the police even more. Because what lacks in law enforcement is essentially just better training. And with better training, you'll have better cops. So if you want better cops, why would you defund them and not fund them more and invest in these people more? And these are people that you have to uh, give credit to, even some of them in the current state of affairs or previous state of affairs in the past few years in the country have still shown up and are resilient enough to say, I can ignore the noise and do the work because I know it's important to those people who did not say they didn't want me. There are people in this community who say they need us and I know they need us. So yeah, there's, yeah, there's hope. You have to have hope. It's not going anywhere. We've got to fix it. People, I think, even if they acknowledge they need law enforcement officers, when you've got these activist DAs, I mean, you, you can go out, you can arrest people. They're back on the street the next day, especially seeing that in New York City, of course. you got San Francisco and all of California where you can pretty much go in and ransack a Walgreens and get away with it. I mean, people are walking around with stuffed items in their pants. And what do you do? They don't stop you. And so even if they do, you have a law enforcement officer that shows up. you got a homeless person shooting up needles on your stoop. And they say, listen, I can take the guy in, but he's going to be right back here in a few hours. Is there a solution to these activist DAs and the George Soros funded political machine that's behind all of this that's actively working to undermine those on the street? I mean, I think it's time to have the honest conversation of stopping stopping to politicize or stop politicizing the police and using them as pawns for your your political agendas. Um, This is one profession that needs to be separate from political agendas. Unfortunately, they're a significant pawn in political agendas. Um, And now, again, like you see, everybody's pulling back from it. They're changing their tune because it was such a big failure. It was such a big failure, such a knee-jerk reaction. The emotions that were tied to whatever you want to consider the state of affairs, and I'm indifferent in the sense of I'm not going to start taking positions on all these different things that occurred. Um, I'll call it like I see it when I see it. It's not right. Uh, But that's irrelevant to the point. The problem we have now is a solution that didn't work. And everybody who had a brain said, this is never going to work. It makes zero sense. So the solution is, is for everybody to just start acknowledging that we've made some significant mistakes and for people who can to remove these folks out of political office, your district attorneys, your people, I mean, and you got the cops just running. They're terrified because they're prosecuting police officers faster than prosecuting criminals. It's wild. I have a theory because I don't know, it doesn't do well for Democrats 
or anybody politically to defund the police and to have crime in our streets the way that it is now, to have these bail reform policies where people are really afraid in their own backyards. And, and now it's it's trickling into the suburbs as well. It's not just the big city. So it doesn't do well politically. I think it's going to be a big issue in the midterms. But I think because I know how the political machine works through chaos comes power and order. I feel like they want to nationalize the police, quite frankly. I feel like that's the ultimate goal here is to take away power from individual jurisdictions and departments and nationalize it because I think that the federal government would love to control all police the way they do the military. Yeah, there's a question about it, but the likelihood of that happening is just slim to none just because if you actually understand the agenda or how the structure is set up or the system set up, everybody has their piece of the pie, their little kingdom, and they are not willing to give that up very, very comfortably. Uh, and there's a lot of political connections in places that that would almost be impossible to occur just because people, even chiefs and sheriffs, and all, they do have political you know, influence for better or for worse, whatever it may be. I mean, we have some really, really great sheriffs and chiefs in this country, and, and you can tell who they are because you have people leaving uh, places like the NYPD and going to work for them 10, 15 states away right. because they're not cowards, because they have right. courage. And they will stand up for the men and women who show up to do this job thanklessly every single day. You brought up training, which I think is so important. Obviously, that's what you've dedicated your post-law enforcement career to, is training law enforcement officers. You know, I've been there, and I see the classes that you guys have. I mean, it's extensive in your training officers. But we hear this all the time in the media. Training. Officers need to learn how to do this better, do that better. They need to learn how to community police better. And we hear that, and it sounds great. It sounds like great lip service. But from a law enforcement perspective and a training perspective, what does that look like when they say things like community policing, officers need to do better? What is that? Well, I don't think you need to speak out of one side of your mouth saying you need more training. On the other side of the coin, you haven't funded the police at all. You're defunding them. Um, training is important, but good training is important. And we have to acknowledge that that has to be not politicized as well. I don't use my friends or the people that I know after doing this for uh, 10 years to get people to come to my training courses or our training courses, we have over 45 instructors now. Um, our proof is in the pudding. This is not a promotion for us. It's I'm understanding that training versus good training is the variable here. So you can't just say you did something and check a box. You've got to actually sit down, have the conversation, look at what you have as far as options and say, this is the best path forward. These are the people who are leading law enforcement in the training arena. And we should talk to them because they actually, maybe we don't have the skills and abilities to really discern what's good and what's not and take the information from the people who have attended and say, yeah, these are the guys, these are the girls. These are the people who are actually teaching us what we need to know. If you would like a better cop, send us here, have us mm -hmm. train like this. And you know, it's, it's a sad state of affairs, but there is hope, there's progression. And if it wasn't for the resiliency of the men and women in law enforcement who are willing to show up many times on their own time and dime, using vacation days, traveling on their, at their own cost to get better at this profession, even when they're making, like I said, mm -hmm. probably subpar to what most people make in a profession. Uh, you know, it speaks volumes of who they are, and that's why there's so much hope, because you have the right people who have done this job, not because they needed a job, not because they wanted to make money, but because it was a calling, mm -hmm. and it meant something to them in their hearts. You know, it certainly is a calling and people that are still willing to do it despite everything being against them. That's an amazing person that really does want to protect and defend their community.
But, you know, you and I talked about this before. There's been a, a lot of cases we see them, and I, I always try to take them with a grain of salt when I say, look at this video, you know, the, the viral videos. This officer is beating the hell out of this person. This officer did that. Oh, my God, can you believe it? And I always say, I want to take a step back, ask my law enforcement friends, is this egregious or was this cherry-picked and edited? What happened here? What led up to it? When you see certain videos like this, what does the general public need to know when they're seeing one of these cell phone videos of an officer using force? What elements are we unaware of in that situation? What happened beforehand? What happened afterhand? What was it for? What were they sent there for? What was the job about? Um, why is the person actively fighting them? You don't have a right to resist law enforcement. Um, they are not beating you to death. They are trying to achieve an objective of bringing you into custody for some violation. Even if you didn't commit that violation, that's what court's for. So you can show up to court and say, this wasn't me, I didn't do this. But to actively fight another human being who's been empowered to do the job of taking uh, criminals into justice and custody, you don't have a right to fight the police. You have a right to defend yourself in the court of law, but you can't fight the cops. So then again, what happened during, after, before? What did their department say? Is the department clearing them already of uh, excessive use of force? I don't know. There's, there's just so many sides to the story. People say to me, well, what's your opinion? Well, I don't know. I don't have all the details. I'm not right. knee-jerk reaction to these things and just jumping down and being critical. Um, I know what that does, and it doesn't resolve anything. And again, I think that we need to begin to have more of a communication and an open-door policy of explaining things if we're willing to sit down as adults and have the conversation, not just walking with an agenda that I hate the police no matter what you say is never going to be enough satisfaction for me to, to concede that something was right or something was wrong here, and on both sides as well. Right. No, I think that's important when we acknowledge things that were done poorly and things that were done excessively. That's advantageous to law enforcement as a whole and those of us who support law enforcement adamantly. But I think you brought up another good point about resisting arrest. And, you know, I said this when, when I spoke to your group, and I say it at every university I go to, every law enforcement function I go to, like, listen— None of these these police use of deadly force that I can think of, at least in the last several of years, would have happened if the perpetrator or let's just say they were innocent, hadn't resisted arrest. Mm. Have your day in court. Say this officer was a racist a-hole. That's fine. But when you're resisting arrest, you're pulling out a knife, you're pulling a gun, you're running away. Listen, you don't have a right to do that, like you said. And if you would just comply you will have your day in court and you will get actual justice. And then, you know what, maybe that bad apple would be taken care of another way. But you can't do that if you're dead. But why do you think that is now that people feel so empowered to resist arrest and not only just resist arrest, but actually actively assault law enforcement? I mean, let's look what happened in Atlanta. The previous mayor literally jumped the gun and had the police officer who was later cleared, uh, charges dismissed, and is now sitting on probably one of the fattest lawsuits against the city of Atlanta. Uh, had him prosecuted immediately without any kind of due process. So it sends a signal to the community that, hey, it doesn't matter what you do to the cops, we got your back up top and we don't have their back at all. So they're setting the, the, the playing ground. They're setting the rules of what you're allowed to do, what you can get away with. And if the cops have to take action, uh, we will not support them. We will support the people in the field and again, I'm not talking about the incident itself. I'm saying what they've said as far as precedent. When they say, mm -hmm. we're here on your side. And you know what's crazy? It's just wild. Like these political leaders, quote unquote, that have come up with these solutions, these knee-jerk reactions, these defund movements. And what they don't realize is, or maybe they do realize now, that they have now cost the city or the cities that they live in <laughs> millions of dollars, countless lives lost. 
because of what you've done and how you've chastised and criticized law enforcement. So they set the rules. They set this precedent. They set the arena of what you're allowed to get away with. And we're going to make sure that you can do that and be disrespectful to law enforcement. Well, I mean, we've seen it in the last several years as well. There's riots in the streets, even if the, the convict, the felon, the perpetrator has a gun, a knife, I mean, a bomb. Some of these people, they don't care. It's like you don't have a right to neutralize that threat regardless. If that person is a certain skin color, they are untouchable. And that's ridiculous because those people are probably committing crimes in other minority neighborhoods and hurting the very people of color that we're supposed to be uplifting, we're supposed to be enfranchising and protecting. So it's absolutely ridiculous to me. But I think there's a lot of money in it. So you got people like, what is it, Ben Crump, who goes around suing cities and on behalf of families and they make a lot of money off this because the city doesn't want to fight the lawsuit. Mm -hmm. They've settled. They pay out. They've learned that this is a cash cow to go after the police, settle, go after the police, settle. Everyone's walking away with huge chunks of change. So that's a big part of it, too. And I don't know. I don't know if there's a solution to that. I mean, could you imagine the police officer who goes out and tries to do the job with basically the little training they have and try to achieve these objectives to protect society, protect themselves, ensure they go home to their families, bring offenders to justice and that is constantly hanging over their head that anything i do i'm gonna be scrutinized because it doesn't even matter if the agency is now responsible for the lawsuit and they may be absolved from having any kind of personal assets tied into it the emotional roller coaster that cops go through of being told do your job but if you do it there's a likelihood that we're going to bring you through hell and back you yeah. might get absolved you might get cleared no problem but Man, it's a it's it's a daunting ride to be on. And every cop will tell you a lot of times it's really not the job itself that's difficult. It's the BS that comes with the job that's very difficult. And BS just like the stuff you talked about, mm -hmm. knowing that we did our job, but yet somebody's gonna show up and criticize. We did it to the letter of the law, exactly what you wanted, exactly the training said. It was a flawless job. A lot of times we don't even think we did anything. We're like, wow, this is great, what a great job. And mm -hmm. then three days later, you're being served, or a week later or two weeks later with a notice or a subpoena to appear before courts for a civil rights violation. You just can't figure out why. Like, what? when did these people think it was okay to do what they did and then turn around and sue us for taking action? Mm -hmm. It's wild. Well, in the court of public opinion makes that decision and they can ruin your life. So I, I've often said this, officers have two choices now. You're either going to die in the line of duty or you're going to take the action needed and that you were trained to use, and then you're essentially going to die anyway because your name has been so smirched and you've been so demonized and your, your face and your picture is everywhere and you are now so hated and your family is so hated and targeted. At that point, you're essentially dead. But the last question I have for you, because I hear this all the time, big supporter of law enforcement, as you know, when I say about officers that die in the line of duty and, of course, you got the, the green-haired liberals on there that are, well, they, they know what they signed up for. They, they knew what that job was. You know, they didn't have to use that force. That they, they signed up to die in the line of duty. I mean, that's essentially what they're saying. When you hear that, what would you tell these people? These are human beings. Just like your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister. Somebody you love. Somebody that loved them will no longer see them ever again in their lives. Last night in Bristol, Connecticut, I believe it was a uh, fake 911 call. And a gentleman had met these men I don't know if there's a woman involved as well, but these law enforcement officers and executed them. And I know for a fact the one sergeant there has two small children and a third baby on the way, I was told this morning. So how is that fair? Why did they deserve to die when they showed up to do something so noble uh, that many of us don't even, can't even imagine what it's like to have to show, off, show up in a, in a situation like that? Um, it's absurd. It's ridiculous. And... 
a lot of these people, what I've understood is just really have a lack of perspective. And, the, and you know, one thing I want to say is that we can say that the media paints law enforcement under one broad brush for the most part. Not all media, but a lot of the media because it sells. But what cops need to remember is that there are a lot of people, I would say far majority of society, that, that support them and love them. And I try to remind people of that because we can get jaded in the reading all these websites and all the stuff we see on social media. But you wouldn't be too hard or too steadfast or, or too pressed to find somebody that would say thank you to you or maybe try to offer you something in appreciation uh, for your service. So, well, we have to acknowledge that there are some agendas that are making law enforcement seem like they're criminals. The far majority of the United States loves them, and they need to remember that. And they have to remember when they show up to work, they have to show up with enthusiasm because it doesn't matter what's going on politically or at the agency, is that there is somebody out there who's ready to take your life. And if you're down, if you're just beat up, and you don't want to be there anymore, and you're unenthusiastic, that could cost you your life or the life of other people. So we have to do a good job of remembering why we're here, and they do a good job of it. It's wild. It's just amazing to watch these people still show up with enthusiasm, with hope. And uh, I'm just proud to be a part of this organization and this, this profession because they are the best men and women I've ever met in my life. Listen, I'm not, I'm not sitting here saying that they're all perfect. Uh, I'm not sitting here saying that every profession has their issues, but resolving those issues appropriately is how we come to a resolution because the cops can't go anywhere. We need them. It's clear as day. And it's important for everybody to remember that. I think it's important also for those that are not in law enforcement to make it very clear that we support law enforcement and to be proud of it. And that's something that I preach all the time. People, it's become almost controversial now to support law enforcement. And when I see cowardly, honestly, mostly conservatives, cowardly conservatives who are afraid to be pro-law enforcement or pro-anything because they don't want their liberal friends not to like them, like you guys are literally putting your lives on the line every single day. The least we could do is be proud enough to support you in what you do for us. But thank you for everything that you do for the law enforcement community, for, for bringing me into the fold and allowing me to meet all the wonderful men and women in your organization. And we're happy to have you in Nashville. I want to say one last thing that a lot of people don't know about Tommy is that um, she's a kind woman, and I really believe in my heart that she doesn't support law enforcement to push any kind of agenda. I really believe that you are somebody who appreciates law enforcement at its core, and the reason I say this is because I know that you do a lot of things that, unbeknownst to public uh, knowledge, show up in a lot of places at your own time and dime and continue to support, and you have the courage unlike a lot of people, and we're asking you for your courage to say, you know what, I, I'm, I'm on board with this. I'm on board with these men and women. So on behalf of the law enforcement community, I just want to say thank you to you. Uh, it means a lot. We know what it's like to work with you behind the scenes, and, and you do a really, really nice job of giving us the credit that we deserve. Well, I appreciate that, and I feel like I do so little to what you guys do, but I thank you so much for yeah. saying that. Thanks I for really having me. appreciate, I appreciate that. Thank yeah. you. And we'll see you very soon as well. All right. Up next, Americans have failed to realize that our greatest enemy has not been an ocean away. Our adversaries are here on American soil, present within our institutions and advising those who are sworn to represent us throughout the highest levels of our federal government. And that is where my next guest comes in. Stay tuned. 
My friend served in the Marine Corps, the FBI, and consulted our nation's leaders on matters of national security and counterterrorism. But his message to Americans is this. The enemy is not always a world or an ocean away. In fact, our enemies have embedded themselves here in America, hiding in plain sight. So what do we need to know and what can be done to root them out? The founder of Understanding the Threat, John Guandolo, joins me now. John, you and I have had a lot of conversations. And uh, surprisingly, the threat is still here. <laughs> you haven't managed to fully solve it yet, but I know that you're you're working hard on it and you've awakened a lot of people to what's really happening. Right. But right now, especially as we head into midterms with everything going on and all of the political propaganda and everything concerning the FBI, Donald Trump, law enforcement, our Constitution, our leaders, this, that and the other. What do you think is the biggest threat facing Americans that we might not be aware of? I think the biggest threat to the Republican, uh, to the Republican, to the Constitutional Republic is the Republican Party. Um, I think the leadership of the Republicans are failing, not only failing to do what needs to be done to protect uh, citizens. They talk a lot and they talk a big game, but if you watch what they've done in the last 12 years, the communist and jihadi movements and other hostile movements have progressed almost unabated. And that, uh, from our perspective at understanding the threat, is the greatest threat. Because when communists act like communists and jihadis act like jihadis, from a warfighting perspective, that should not surprise us. Right. But when people who have the word republic in their name, the party of Lincoln, fail to do the most basic things, it's not just a failure. These aren't just rhinos. What's happening is, is the intentional outcome of what they intend to happen. And that, I think, for a lot of Americans is the hardest thing to put their, put their hands around. But I wonder, is it because they don't understand the threat, as you talk about? Or is it because they're, they don't care? They're part of it. it. It's lining their pockets. What is it? Because there are a lot of Republicans out there. There's a lot of rhinos. And there's a lot of spineless Republicans. And I think we all know, you know who they are. And, and they have big names. And we can name them off. But it seems to me like maybe it's not just those that they don't like Donald Trump. They don't like America first. They're, you know, they got the military industrial complex lining their pockets. Are there just some that they don't understand and they can't recognize a threat when they see it? They don't know how to combat it? Sure. And there are, there are a lot of different reasons why, why people who call themselves Republicans do not uh, address these threats. But I would ask them... How many times should we just say, oh, I guess you're ignorant when they do the same thing over and over again, which drastically oppress the rights, the unalienable rights of American citizens? And they just say, darn, we were so close in that one vote. Darn, we just missed it. And it's the same people. And we know who these people are and what they're doing. You have to ask at some point, this is an intentional effort by them. You know, you've got traitors, I will call them traitors, like Mike Pence, like Mitch McConnell, who say, yeah, the evidence is on the table, but nope, we're not going to do it. We're not going to do what is required to protect the Constitutional Republic, the Constitution itself, the Declaration and our founding principles. How many times are we going to allow them just to say, oh, I didn't know? So let's talk about the threat, though, because it sounds we can talk about we have a, a lot of threats. We have threats to our First Amendment, our Second Amendment. We're being censored by big tech, big pharma, big government. We can name all those things. But what you do in, in the counterterrorism that you do in consulting our government on that element, you and I have talked about before that it, there's an intersection 
between a lot of these groups that are working together that might seem like they're they're complete opposites, all having you know a nefarious goal. But you've got your terrorists, your radical Islamic terrorists. Then you've got your communists, your Marxists. Then you've got you know your your BLMers, BLM Inc. The organization. We talk about the intersection of all of that and how they might actually all be working together in some aspect. And I know you do a lot of work on that. You've written a lot about that. What do we need to know? What can the average person look to when we see headlines or we see stories or we get information? How do we understand and interpret it in the best way to have the best information and understanding? So I think that's a great question. I think that's the key question. The question I get most is, you know, we're getting pounded with so much information. Where's the truth? Because there are people we used to trust, you know, that were telling us things, and now we realize what they said is just not true. How do we discern? And I think it begins with knowing the truth about who the, the people are. And that goes back kind of to what I just said about people like Mitch McConnell and uh, Lindsey Graham and, and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and, and Mike Pence. These people are liars. They've been lying to us about what's going on. So how do we deal with that? So number one, like when we talk about Black Lives Matter, that's a Chinese communist organization created by Liberation Road, the Freedom Road Socialist Organization, the largest Chinese communist organization in America, created BLM. Their leaders are communists. They said as much. We're trained Marxists. Uh, you've got Antifa, that, that is a Soviet communist-formed organization. So we know who they are. So anybody that gives them any slack is either grossly ignorant, which makes them criminally negligent since people are dead because of what they've been doing. So you've got all that. Then you've got the jihadi groups. You've got the primarily Muslim Brotherhood, Hamas organizations in the United States, but you've got massive Turkish Muslim Brotherhood influence in the United States. You've got uh, Iranian Hezbollah influence here. But the thing is they are, as you just said, they are all working together. And what we see at the ground level right here in Nashville, where I'm from in Dallas, in Los Angeles, in Wichita, Kansas, in Charlotte, North Carolina, at the ground level, the communists and jihadis are working seamlessly. And the local law enforcement, state law enforcement and security agencies have no idea because the federal agencies don't understand it and aren't explaining it to them. So when we do go in, when understanding the threat goes in and trains citizens and law enforcement, their minds are blown at how bad the situation is in their community, and nobody's talking about it. Nobody's explaining it to them. Well, often, I think as well, the average American can see what's going on in some of our institutions, and you and I have talked about this a lot, but there's one individual's name, the Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights, Kristen Clark. I want to talk about her because her name came up earlier this week when we're talking about these Christian Catholic activists that are being rounded up, indicted on federal charges for blocking access to abortion clinics. Regardless how people feel about pro-life, pro-choice, it doesn't matter. It would seem to be there is a target on the backs of people who are not friendly to the leftist agenda. And whereas you've got parents in school board meetings speaking out against masks and critical race theory, and you've got these Catholic mamas and papas outside getting arrested and indicted on federal charges for blocking an abortion clinic for protesting. And then you've got actual <laughs> terrorists and you've got child exploitation. You've got sex trafficking, human trafficking. You've got all these horrible things happening. What is wrong with our institutions? You are a member of the FBI. You worked so many years in, in intelligence and in agencies like this. What is happening? And is there hope of fixing it? 
So I'm going to hold on the last question, the uh, is there hope of fixing it? I, I think um, what's going on, and again, I think this is very hard for people, especially people um, maybe 50 and older who have watched these institutions and had trust in them in the Department of Justice. So even when they made errors, you know, they were they were pursuing true justice. Uh, the FBI, you know, most people uh, in generations older than ours, you know, are are looking at the FBI and thinking, wow, you know, they used to be, you know, something that we respected and, and honored. So what's happened? Well, there has been a very intentional effort to subvert and undercut these organizations. So now you have a Department of Justice that is not actually pursuing justice. It's being used as a political tool. You have the FBI, and you and I have talked about this, whose former director, James Comey, admitted he was a communist. And if a communist, even if he claims he's no longer a communist, a guy who admitted he was a communist right before he became the deputy attorney general of the United States, and nobody stepped in to stop that, what does that say about the entire Department of Justice, the Senate, the House that approved him, people that uh, voted for him to be the FBI director, people that approved appointed or to be the assistant director or the assistant attorney general of the United States. How do you, how do these things happen if the entire system isn't completely corrupted? And to your question is, can we fix it? I think short of a massive purge in the U S government, which uh, we were hoping Mr. Trump would have done in his first administration, um, really go in and, and I put the finger on those people who are hostile to the constitution who are not abiding by their oath and ripping them out where you can uh, have legal charges against them, file them. But again, before you do that, you have to purge the Department of Justice, which is a complete political animal now. My last question for you, because they're going to make me rap, even though I could talk about it all day. I do want to know this, though. Okay. We hear George Soros a lot. We know that he pumps a lot of money into DA races, and we know that he's had a hand in a lot of the chaos that's been happening with our bail reform, these activist DAs letting criminals and felons back out onto the street. That's something we hear this name often. What do we need to know about George Soros? Because we hear this big boogeyman name, and I'm always wondering, like, where is, I know this man is obviously incredibly wealthy, but where are his funds coming from? What is his goal? Why is he so invested in the chaos that he is creating in our country. So t two points I'd like to make in the, in the time we have left. Number one, George Soros's goal is the destruction of these free market economies we find where they exist in Europe, certainly in the United States. That's his goal. He is a destroyer. And so that's why he pays 750 to a million dollars to put his DA in places like San Antonio, Texas and other places. You know, that's why he pours money into Texas specifically. But that's why he funds groups like BLM, because they destroy. They're all about destruction because they're communists. That's why he pours money into movements, organizations, and individuals that are like-minded, including, by the way, and now we've got Soros Money, World Economic Forum, uh, Communist Movement, and Islamic Movement joining together at the international level and literally targeting communities in Europe and the United States and, and Canada. Other places as well, but from our perspective and my concern, is America. What understanding the threat, what my organization does, we're the only ones 
who are rolling back the destructive path of George Soros in all the forms that it comes in local county uh, areas because Soros and his cronies know that it is at the local level that yeah. you take over countries, and that's what he's been doing. It's the ground game. It's the ground game that they're always playing the small game that's with right. a big picture in mind. And I just, for the life of me, cannot figure out why this man is still has so much influence in the daily lives of Americans from small town to big city. This man, George right. Soros, and his money are wreaking havoc. And it's amazing to me that we can't root it out. With all of us saying, because there's not a lot of people that are like, I love George Soros, or that would openly admit it. But the man is still funding chaos. So that goes back to your question. Where's our Department of Justice? Yeah. You could, you could put together a criminal conspiracy that he is working to literally destroy the United States of America. So sedition, potentially. Certainly a conspiracy to overthrow the U.S. government. But where are the U.S. attorneys? Where are the assistant U.S. attorneys? Where are the, where are the state prosecutors? Now, some things are starting to turn up at the state and local level, but I, I fear it's too little too late. That's why what we're doing, we're trying to fortify as many counties, understanding the threat is, in the United States as quickly as possible because we are in a very dangerous time. As you well know, you talk about it every day. That's why we do the work we do. That's why I do what I do. You and what everybody can do at their level is be very, very vigilant. Like you said, it's not all about who's in the White House and who's the speaker and who's the majority leader. It's about who's sitting on your school board, what they're pushing, what they're teaching, yes. what they're indoctrinating. And I think kids is also where it starts. John, I love having you here. I wish I could have you longer. You're always welcome. And thank you for giving us a few of the tips and, and tools and tricks. I know that you have so many, but we always appreciate when you share them with us. Thank you. All right. <laughs> Up next, a top Pfizer executive let it slip. The pharma titan had no idea if the vaccine would prevent infection or spread. Wow, knock me over with a feather. My final thoughts are next. Folks, I'm about to share some breaking news with you that's not breaking or even news. Big Pharma put out an experimental COVID vaccine without knowing if it would indeed prevent infection or spread. Well, no freaking duh. It's time for final thoughts. A typical vaccine development timeline takes five to 10 years and sometimes longer to assess whether the vaccine is safe and efficacious in clinical trials, complete the regulatory approval processes, and manufacture sufficient quantity of vaccine doses for widespread distribution. That's according to Johns Hopkins University in Medicine, by the way. I didn't just pull it out of thin air. And if you're a vax pusher and want to somehow do the moron mental gymnastics necessary to discredit Johns Hopkins, well, here is a quote from the definitely not conservative New York State Department of Health, which states the creation of a vaccine usually requires 10 to 15 years of research. Want to know how long it took the FDA to push through the experimental COVID vaccines? Well, the virus that causes COVID-19 was first identified in December 2019. And by December 11th, 2020, the Pfizer vaccine became the first to receive emergency use authorization from the FDA. Huh. Wow, a year, huh? Not five to 10, not 10 to 15, just one, huh? That sounds safe. But I mean, let's go ahead and throw all the side effect horror stories out the window. Let's throw Big Pharma a bone and pretend it's safe. Are the COVID vaccines effective? 
Well, we know now that people have died from COVID after receiving the vaccines, and we know for damn sure by now they don't prevent infection or spread. But is this a relatively new revelation? No, no, it's not. In fact, according to this testimony by Pfizer top executive and the company's president of international development markets, Janine Small, Pfizer had no idea if their mystical, magical rush vaccine would do jack. Was the Pfizer COVID vaccine tested on stopping the transmission of the virus before it entered the market? If not, please say it clearly. If yes, are you willing to share the data with this committee? And I really want a straight answer, yes or no, and I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Um, regarding the question around, um, did we know about stopping humanization before um, it entered the market? No. Uh, these, um, you know, we had to really move at the speed of science to really understand what is taking place in the market. Yes, yes, she really did just admit Pfizer's mRNA vaccine had never been tested on its ability to prevent the transmission before it's released to the general public at large. Am I shocked? No. Do I think this is going to change the minds of the COVID-obsessed vax worshippers who celebrate booster shots like Mardi Gras? No. But with each passing day, we get more and more information that validates and justifies the conspiracy theories us vax skeptics have had since day one. Now, the only question remaining is how long the big tech and big pharma duo can continue to suppress the very real vaccine side effect stories. The emperor has no clothes, people. Pull back the magic curtain and open your freaking eyes and you'll see it clear as day. And I pray you do before you pound booster eight into your freaking arms. At this rate, some of you are going to be glowing in Technicolor by Christmas. Best of luck with that. I'm going to go ahead and stick to diet, exercise, and basic hygiene. Those are my final thoughts. Make sure you catch the entire show and exclusive content on Outkick.com. From Nashville, God bless and take care.